This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. So we're live. Thank you for joining us, HCJ.tax, a member of Moore's Rule in Asia Pacific. Every week we do a live stream talking all things tax, international tax. And today we're going to talk about US-Australia tax. So this is being recorded. So for those on Zoom, if you do not want your image to be captured, you need to keep your camera switched off. We have asked, uh, we've invited those that RSVP to submit questions in advance. For those that did, thank you very much, we got those. For those who didn't get a chance to and would like to ask questions, please feel free to type them in the box below and we will get to them in the order in which we receive them. Now, for those who are joining us for the first time, please bear in mind that we are not giving tax advice. We're all licensed, credited tax professionals. So it's impossible to give tax advice based on uh, like two seconds of information about your situation. The only person that can advise you is someone who's qualified and who knows your situation inside out. So this is just consider this information, general information. You can even consider it entertainment, but it certainly is not to be construed as tax advice. What we're trying to do is equip you with the tools needed to engage a tax professional of your choice and the tools and the, and the, the key concepts that you'll need to bear in mind as you try to resolve your, your personal tax situation. So having said that, without further ado, I introduce James, special tax counsel with Abbott Morley, and who's going to give us an overview of Australia tax. And then we get into the Q&A, which I know you guys have tuned in for. Over to you, James. Uh, okay, thank you for that introduction and hello everyone out there. Um, uh, look, Australia is similar in a lot of ways from an international tax perspective to lots of lots of other countries um, and its tax territory uh, or jurisdiction, I should say, is, is essentially on two bases. One is residents. We tax our residents on their worldwide income from, from all sources. Um, subject to any specific concessions or exemptions. Um, and we tax non-Australian residents or foreign residents on their only on their income from Australian sources. And again, there are specific um, concessions uh, for political reasons, uh, for instance, to attract foreign foreign capital. If you're a foreign person investing in uh, Australian uh, shares or shares in an Australian company, I should say, then with very limited exceptions, uh, a foreign resident isn't taxed at all on that capital gain when they sell shares. So um, the two two essential bases, residence and and source, we do have a, a strange kind of halfway measure or hybrid measure where if you're uh, an Australian resident, but you, you qualify as a temporary resident, uh, which is essentially for people that are here on certain types of uh, temporary visas, um, they are only taxed in Australia on their Australian sourced income, whereas they could generate millions or billions of dollars overseas. And even if they bring that into Australia, um, that's not taxed for as long as they have that, that particular kind of hybrid temporary resident status. So they're the two main ones, uh, as well as the kind of strange little hybrid um, bases for Australian taxation. Um, that's at the, the individual um, level, but it also uh, plays out uh, as well in the context of uh, an Australian company. Uh, an Australian company is taxed in Australia on its worldwide income. A foreign company um, is only taxed on its income from Australian sources. But um, in that regard, Australia has a very, very broad range of uh, double tax agreements with various countries. And uh, as you may be um, aware, and it's similar in, in reverse, uh, a foreign foreign company that carries on business in Australia, um, even though under our domestic law, um, the source of, of that income uh, is likely to be Australia and therefore is in our domestic tax net. Um, if there is a double tax agreement with, with that particular country, 
residence country, I should say, then they aren't taxed in Australia unless they have what is known as a permanent establishment in Australia. So a significant enough economic presence in Australia in order to be taxed here. Um, and if they are taxed here, they're taxed in Australia, uh, but only on their the income of the permanent establishment. They're taxed as a company. Um, Australia doesn't have uh, branch profits remittance tax like a lot of other um, countries do. Um, and in terms of our, our corporate tax system more broadly, um, Australia's corporate tax rate is actually currently we have a dual system um, for a lot of, of smaller, uh, sort of small to medium enterprises, I should say. It's uh, it's 25, um, uh, and that requires that you're a, a base rate entity, which isn't just about size, but also the, the mix of passive versus uh, active income in a sense. If you qualify, um, you're in the 25% uh, pool. Uh, if you don't qualify, you're still in the general 30% um, pool. And Australian uh, the Australian corporate tax system uh, is not like the US tax system, which is a more classical corporate tax system or what they call classical corporate tax. Uh, we have an imputation system um, or a franking credit system. So when a company pays tax, it generates franking credits or tax credits. It can attach those tax credits to the cash component of a dividend it pays out to its shareholders. And if the shareholder is an Australian resident, then they gross up that that income to reflect the value of the tax credit, determine what the tax pay payable is, reduce that by the, the credit, and they pay the, the difference. And in fact, if their, their personal rate is less than the corporate tax paid, then they actually get a cash refund of the difference. If you're a foreign resident receiving a dividend from an Australian company, then if it's, if it's fully franked, then we, we don't charge any dividend withholding tax. Um, to the extent that it's unfranked, then we have a 30% withholding tax rate. But again, being being parties to a multitude of, of double tax agreements all around the, all around the world, uh, that is uh, under those, those various agreements significantly uh, reduced, sometimes to nil, uh, 5%, 15%, uh, it depends on the particular DTA and uh, the particular circumstances. Um, what else in terms of investing um, into Australia? We also have uh, a beneficial kind of regime in terms of uh, if a, a company invests in an Australian subsidiary and uh, in the future down the track, uh, if it sells off its Australian subsidiary, um, uh, unless it, it has certain types of uh, Australian real property assets. So if it's a non-real non property uh, business, a foreign parent sells the, the shares in the Australian subsidiary. And again, there's no, no tax. Uh, whereas if they ever sold off, if they operated directly in Australia through a PE, through an establishment and they sold that off, then they're just taxed in Australia in the usual way. So there's a bit of a, a structural bias towards uh, a subsidiary in that in that regard, um, but um, in Australia you'd have to well certainly you would say that compared to other countries, compared to the uh, US, from what I can tell in in dealing with US advisors over the years, um, share sales uh, compared to an underlying asset sale is significantly less common uh, in Australia than it is elsewhere in the world generally, and certainly the US specifically. Um, so in terms of, uh, for instance, in, investing in Australian property, where when you're an overseas um, investor, uh, like again, like a lot of other countries, um, Australia kind of covets its its tax on uh, on real property, and uh, it will always uh, tax uh, Australian Australian property uh, if you own it directly, um, and even if you own it indirectly, if you own uh, say uh, shares in a, a company, whether it's an Australian, uh, we'll say it's an Australian company that in turn owns Australian property. If you own ten percent or more of that company, and more than half the value of that company is represented by Australian real property, then even if you sold that share, um, that is effectively taxed as if it were were real property. So uh, very much um, uh, Australia covers its kind of 
tax on uh, on real property. Um, in addition to, to that, since 2012, uh, there has been this kind of two-tiered uh, system in terms of uh, residents versus non-residents in terms of investing in, in Australian assets. So up until then, um, and since then, uh, it's been the same for residents, but different for non-residents. Uh, but up until 2012, uh, if you invested in, in Australian property uh, and you it was a capital asset, so it wasn't a trading stock, it wasn't a revenue asset, if uh, if you uh, if you held that for at least 12, 12 months and you're an eligible person, um, so we're talking about individuals or or trusts where the gain flows eventually up to uh, an individual, uh, but not companies because companies were, were never eligible in this regard, then you got what is called the the general fifty percent capital gains tax discount. So if you um, held a capital asset for five years, made a million dollars. Um, you could take the first uh, 50%, $500,000 tax-free, and then you're only assessed on the other the other uh, 50% or, or 500 in that example. Um, from 2012, that only applies if you're a resident. And even if you're a resident um, for some, but not all of the ownership period, then you have to essentially prorate that, uh, that discount. So that's... Um, uh, disappointing from an investor's perspective um, because we, as in Australia, also have kind of a two-tier rate system, whereas we we have a different set of tax rates for residents versus non-residents. The main difference being that residents aren't eligible for uh, the, the tax-free threshold, so they'll pay tax from their, their first dollar, and because of that, the, the rate up to uh, the maximum tax rate, uh, which is currently 45 here in Australia, uh, and kicks in at a relatively low 180,000 uh, AUD, uh, you can get up there very quickly, particularly when we're talking about a, a capital gain other than just you know salary and wage uh, income. Um, look, in, a, in a, a nutshell, that's kind of Australia's tax jurisdiction. Um, in terms of uh, the practice uh, and dealing with um, foreign people coming to Australia, um, Australians uh, departing overseas. Um, when a, a foreign person comes to Australia and they do become an Australian resident, and, and we have various um, residency tests, uh, the 183-day test, the you know, ordinarily um, resident test, the uh, permanent um, abode test. Um, but if you satisfy or fall within any of those, um, and you become an Australian resident for tax purposes, uh, subject to you being a, a temporary resident, all of your worldwide assets come into the Australian tax net um, at that time at their market value. So that's something to um, consider because if you have an asset that you purchased for a million dollars and by the time that you became an Australian resident, it was worth 10 million, um, you certainly want to be able to prove that on that particular date, that asset was worth 10 million because if in the future you sold it for 11 million, um, Australia only has the right to tax 1 million of that, um, even though you, you made a $10 million gain. So it's very important um, if you're moving to uh, Australia or you have clients that are moving to Australia to, to kind of be aware of that, get some contemporaneous valuations as, as friendly as possible, obviously, robust and, and professional, um, but valuation is uh, often more art than science. So a robust valuation, as high as reasonably possible, um, bodes well for, for incoming individuals. Um, we also have circumstances where Australians leaving um, Australia, ceasing to be a resident. You know, Australia does have uh, essentially an exit tax. Um, so individuals are deemed to have disposed of all of their uh, CGT assets other than uh, special classes of, of assets called taxable Australian property, most notably Australian real property. That's always in the tax net. Australia won't let that go. Um, but they deem the disposal of all other assets unless the individual uh, essentially makes an election to say, don't tax me now, tax me later when I actually sell. Um, but in doing that, in kind of touching upon what we uh, raised earlier, for that period of time, uh, that ownership period over the, the total ownership period that they were a foreign resident 
when they eventually sell, they won't get their, their capital gains tax discount. So uh, it's just something else to be aware of if you're an Aussie leaving um, and seeking to be a resident, or you have clients that uh, that are. Um, but look, in a in, in a nutshell, that's the 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 Australian tax system. All right, fantastic, James. Sorry, someone just messaged me, uh, sent me a private uh, a PM. They, what's your full name? If could you type you because they're seeing the James. And, oh, sorry. Yes, I'll, uh, no, 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 I'll change that. Okay. And if someone wanted to reach out to you to to re, you know retain your your services, your firm services for Australian tax matters, what's what's the best way? For someone to find you, oh yeah, you can uh, email me at the Abbott Morley email address. Okay, all right, fantastic. All right, so I'm just going into the questions that were submitted. Again, for those who have not yet submitted and they want to ask a question, you can just feel free to type it in one of the boxes below. Okay. Can so I just sorry, sorry. That's all right. Sure. Can I just interject yeah. for a sec, uh, so I can just give the details of. Um, James's email address. Oh, mm -hmm. It's it is James dot Melly M E L I at abbotmorley.com.au. Okay. So anybody wants to touch base with uh, James and perhaps retain the services um, of James, um, yeah, just flick him an email and um, he'd be quite happy to um, to assist you guys. Thanks, sir. Thanks, Darren. Wonderful. Thanks a lot for that, Tony. So I'm just going to jump through the questions that were, were that were submitted. Hopefully we can get through all of them in time. Sure. <laughs> so so this, this one is from Maggie. Maggie's asking, uh, I have a question about CGT capital gains taxes. If you sell an investment property in Australia, I understand yeah. that it will be liable for capital gains tax in the US. However, will capital gains tax paid in Australia be offset against any amount owing uh, to the US? And the answer to that is usually yes. The US does recognize foreign tax credits. So, so that, that's a possibility, yeah. The second part of her question, will the tax breaks available for me in Australia for this? Uh, in brackets, she has a principal residence exemption, the 50% reduction for owning the property for a long time. That's close quotes. Uh, will that carry over to the US or will they calculate it in their own way regardless? Now to answer that, there is a principal residence uh, exclusion, assuming that you resided in it for two of the most recent five years, you will get an exemption on, on any capital, uh, the capital gains tax liability to the US. It's 250 if you're single and 500 thousand us dollars if you are uh, filing jointly so it's not exactly as australia does it but there is a recognition that hey this, this was not really an investment property at least not 100 i lived in it it was my primary residence so you do get a tax break in in some way so yes and, yeah i've dealt with this in the past in terms of okay. uh, where, where we have uh, some a property that was your main residence um but uh, over the total ownership period it was also an investment property then we have yeah. a, an absence what they call an absence rule where if you rent it uh, if you live there then you moved out you can rent it for up to six years and then mm -hmm. when you sell it it's still completely tax free um, if you rented it out for 10 years um, then the, the four years after the six, end of the six-year absence rule, that there would be a pro rata kind of calculation. Um, the taxable portion is taxed in the usual way. You'd get the 50% discount, all of those things. And the, the exempt component is 100% exempt. So you can be in a situation where um, if you just purchase the property, you live there, you have this huge capital gain, uh, mm -hmm. which is completely tax-free in Australia, um, it might still be accessible in the US because they have caps. It's one of the few circumstances where you know uh, uh, America doesn't have a kind of more taxpayer friendly um, kind of outcome than Australia uh, because we have an uncapped 
um, main residence exemption, whereas the, from their perspective, it's capped at the, uh, see, mentioned the, the 250 or the 500. But that's the US, so you also have to do the, the um, exchange. Exactly. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that. And the final part of Maggie's three-part question is, is there a formula to calculate what my potential liability might be in the US? Yes, there is, uh, but it's probably a bit too involved to just explain for you to replicate it. But essentially, you, you take what the sales proceeds would be and you deduct the selling expenses, you know, commissions and, and, and whatever. And you also get to deduct what we call the basis or how much you paid for it, plus any capital improvements that you may have made. And the delta on that. Now, if it is that you didn't rent it out for a certain period of time, there may be some depreciation recapture and it gets a bit complicated that way. But essentially that delta between what you paid for it and the sales proceeds will be, that'll be the taxable gain, at least from a US perspective. Okay. N next question. Uh, in terms of leaving uh, Australia, and, uh, and James, I know you mentioned this, how is that exit tax triggered? Like in the US, it's triggered if your net assets are in excess of $2 million, or if your average tax bill for the prior five years we're in excess of let's say 170, 275 thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. How is it triggered in, in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, and then again, this goes back to my my point about um, the the U.S. having having a more mm -hmm. pro pro tax payer kind okay. of uh, because what you mentioned that two thousand or two million dollar um, threshold it, it's effectively a an mm -hmm. exit tax free threshold that if you're you know if you're not mm -hmm. you're especially wealthy then you you don't that you're not in that net. From an Australian tax perspective, um, mm -hmm. uh, unless the only assets you have are taxable Australian property, most notably real property, if you had shares, uh, even if you had a, a, a tiny share portfolio of $10,000 and it's sitting on a, a $2,000 unrealized capital gain, if you cease to be a resident, you are deemed to have sold it and triggered that $2,000 gain unless you as an individual um, make the election to to say don't tax me now tax when i actually sell um which you know from a, a practical perspective makes sense because well, well you're going to have a real tax liability and no incoming cash on a deemed disposal um but the downside is you're you're giving up that capital gains tax discount uh going forward so to answer the question uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you don't get that that two million dollar kind of free free kick in terms of your asset position. It's just you you're in. Okay, gotcha. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, another somewhat related question. So when someone is giving up their U.S. tax status, it's normally done to uh, in tandem with giving up whatever their residence permit or residence card, green card may have been or surrendering their US passport, right? And then you alert the tax office, the IRS, that you that you are leaving the US permanently by filing something called a form 8854. And that's it. So from a tax residence perspective, you've severed ties with, with the US once you leave. From Australia's perspective, like I know you've explained the exit tax, how, what other steps does one need to take to sell a tax residency with Australia when they leave? Yeah, it, no, these are all good, all good questions. From a practical mm -hmm. perspective, you mm -hmm. don't have to do anything. Uh, and most people, yeah. well, most people don't do anything because they're not aware of it. But uh, essentially, mm -hmm. it, it'll be based on how you prepare your your tax return in a, in a self-assessment environment for the year that you leave. If I were mm -hmm. to, to leave today um, in the, what is for us the, the 2022, the, the the back end of the the 2022 uh, income or financial year, then in my return, um, if I return the deemed capital gain, I'm taken to to have uh, essentially chosen not to make the exit election. If I don't return that mm -hmm. deemed gain, I will be taken to have made the election to say, don't tax me now tax me when I actually sell in the future. And if I go to uh, the Bahamas for 10 years, I'm supposed mm -hmm. to, when I eventually sell, I'm supposed to 
return that game here in in Australia. Uh, to be honest, I don't know how uh, Australia polices that, um, but by the letter of the law, that's that's what you're supposed to do. And again, if, if I held the, the shares for uh, ten years, uh, so I bought them in 2012, left in 2022, sold them when I. I in 10 years time after I've been a non-resident for 10 years um, in, in 2032, then uh, for the for half of the period, I don't get the, the discount. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that. Moving on. Okay. So someone says this is a quick question, but they're like, <laughs> five famous last words. so it's probably <laughs> not going to be a quick question. Uh, so if someone is working remotely in Australia for a U.S. employer, they're still a full-time employee of this U.S. company, not an independent contractor in Australia. Do they pay U.S. social security charges on their salary or Australia? And they're a tax resident in Australia. Yes. So there, there are factual variables here, but... Um, yeah. A high level, if if I, for instance, uh, you know, I've been to the US on holidays, but I'm not a US citizen, don't have a green card, none of that. Um, I could work as a full-time employee for a US company um, and the US company, uh, so I'm taxed here in Australia, the source of my employment income is where I physically am, notwithstanding that I'm paid by a US company. And mm -hmm. as an Australian resident individual working in Australia, they are required to pay Australian superannuation. Now, mm -hmm. that's different if uh, I'm a secondee um, and there are there, there is an agreement, I should say, between Australia and the US as to um, coverage for those mm -hmm. types of payments. If I am a US citizen, I'm sent here um, for a period of time, uh, it might be more than a you know, three-month short-term secondment. Um, but as long as in those circumstances, I'm continued, I continue to be paid in the US, then the U US company doesn't also have to pay um, a superannuation in relation to my, my time here. But short of that, the, the starting point is Australian resident working in Australia for a foreign company, it pays Australian um, superannuation. Okay, so that, that's pretty clear. And of course, there's a totalization agreement between the US and Australia meaning that they're not going to pay social charges on both sides. So, and since they are based in Australia, there is a, a case leveraging that tax treaty for them not to pay the social security charges in the US. But as I reflect on that question, and this kind of connects to a point that you made when you, when you gave your intro. So this person is not working for an Australian company. They're working for an American company. Is there a risk? that their presence on Australia's soil can constitute a permanent establishment to that U.S. company? Um, yes, um, and there is, and I'm not sure what the U.S. Um, uh, equivalent is. We, we uh, that is the, the Australian uh, system, the Australian Taxation Office, has both public, public rulings saying this is our, our stated view, yeah. Um, they have private rulings where someone says, look, these are my circumstances. This is what, how I think I'll be taxed. What do you think? Yeah, yes or no. Mm -hmm. But they also have these products, well, they call them products, um, called ATO interpretive decisions. And they uh, are not quite as, as formal, <coughs> excuse me, as a, as a public ruling, but it must have come about in someone's, um, someone's life. Um, they've approached the, the tax office and they've said, oh, there's, there's a bit of uh, an issue here. Uh, we're going to provide some public guidance as to how we would interpret this this issue. Now, mm. uh, you would expect you know, most governments around the world they'd be pretty pro revenue. Any any kind of grey area in the legislation or, or the, the case law, they'll kind of apply to to benefit them. And look, to, to be fair, taxpayers do the the reverse. Um, but uh, there is an ATO interpretive decision, an ATOID, uh, albeit it relates to um, someone who was um, working in Australia, working from home actually, um, mm -hmm. for a, uh, a New Zealand company. And the outcome of, 
of that was that that person working in their home study was taken to be a a permanent establishment of the New Zealand company. But there are there are two critical things. One, in that instance, that individual was reimbursed for all of their expenses. So the, that allowed the ATO to to take the view that well that that study that home study is really available to the Kiwi company because they're footing the bill effectively. So mm -hmm. short of that, if they weren't doing that, I'd say that that's a critical distinction. Mm -hmm. um, and, and therefore you're kind of differentiating the circumstances to, to that situation. But even if it is taken to be a, a PE, the next question is, well, what, what profit is attributable to that PE? So if that mm -hmm. person, and in, in this instance, it was someone who, um, uh, handled the the phones. So it, I'm not sure it was completely administrative, but in the grand scheme of things, it, it wasn't, um, you know, high value add services that were here. So if that were the case, the, the, the threshold question, is there a PE? Okay, yes or no? Uh, hopefully no. If yes, well, what are they actually doing? Um, how much value is being created um, here? And, you know, what, if anything, can be transfer priced back to the mothership? Um, to legitimately reduce the, uh, the the profit that is attributable to uh, to Australian tax. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That 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 that's really helpful to know. Now, given that we live in unprecedented times, right? There's there's a health situation. We can't mention the name because it gets censored, right? But there's, right, there's, yes. a, there's a health crisis, right? So for some people, I, I don't know whether it's this person's situation, right? But suppose that they were in Australia, Australia, not by choice, but they were unable to return, in this case, to the U.S. Would there be any sort of concession offered by the ATO? Um, anecdotally, um, there has been. Um, and okay. even in, in any of it, if you fall within our um, any of our residence tests, technically mm -hmm. you're, you're in. The, mm -hmm. the next um, the the next step is to look at a double tax agreement and mm -hmm. the, the residency tiebreaker rules in terms of that agreement. And uh, if you've got uh, the, the first tiebreaker rule is usually do you have a, a permanent home wherever you have a permanent home. Some people are you know, wealthy enough to have uh, a permanent home in both places, and then you go down to mm -hmm. the next uh, the next one. Ultimately, it, it gets down to wherever your personal and economic relations are closer. Um, so looking at most people's circumstances, if they're, they're stuck in Australia, their, their family or the majority of their family, the majority of their, their assets are overseas, mm -hmm. then even if um, the ATO didn't make any kind of administrative concession in a, uh, that condition context, then uh, you would still say in the DTA, well, looking at the tiebreaker rules, I fall within the domestic Australian rules as a, a US citizen or a, you know, a continuing resident based on domicile or whatever it is in my home country. I'm a domestic resident under their system. The tiebreaker, this particular tiebreaker applies. And on that basis, um, I'm, I'm actually resident over there. Okay. All right. That, that, that's super helpful to know. Uh, someone just put a question in, in Zoom, but I'll, I'll finish questions on the other platform before I switch back to Zoom. Uh, I'll do one more from here. I want to gift my rental property back in the U.S. to my kids. They haven't said where the kids are, but okay. So what are the tax implications from both a U.S. and Australia perspective of gifting rental property? Now, I'll just comment on the U.S. side. So yeah, the, the U.S. is the source. So yeah, yeah. sure. So, yeah, but, you know, assuming, so this ties back to whether the person, uh, generally speaking, the transferor, so the person who's giving the gift, the donnie, the person who's giving the gift, that is the person who bears the responsibility for the transfer tax, for, for the gift tax. So that's, that's generally speaking. So if it were, if the property were in Australia, we can have a discussion about tax domicile, but because it's in the U.S., it's a U.S. citus asset. So, yep. uh, 
assuming that they are domiciled in the US and this person didn't give enough facts and circumstances to make a determination, but we can, let's, let's assume that they are. They can gift property to the kids up to their lifetime exclusion, which is around $12 million. So assuming that it's less than $12 million, a return would be filed, but no gift tax is payable because it's within their, their lifetime exclusion. If they are not domiciled in the US, then uh, their lifetime exclusion doesn't apply because they, they're not US tax domiciled. So that, that will be, uh, that may trigger a, a gift tax but let's assume that they were U.S. domiciled to keep it simple. But what about from an Australia point of view, seeing that they are tax resident in Australia? Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that the, uh, the owner, um, the, the donor is the, the gifter, um, for lack of a better word, is yeah. the Australian resident. So in those circumstances, um, even though it's a, a gift outside an uh, estate, context uh, so we we don't have um mm -hmm. estate um taxes or in, inheritance mm -hmm. taxes so mm -hmm. if it passed under a will it's a different story but if mm -hmm. someone gifts um an asset a capital gains tax asset um then they are deemed to have disposed of it for its full market value so mm -hmm. there's no difference from a tax perspective whether they had gifted it to their uh, adult child, or they had sold it for its market value to a to an independent third party. From their perspective, it's the same. Um, if the recipient was an Australian uh, resident, then Australia doesn't have a a gift tax. Um, and in the context of uh, a gift, can can in certain circumstances be considered ordinary um, income, but a gift between a, a parent and a child for no, no reason but natural love and affection that is that is outside our mm. our income tax net mm -hmm. okay so yeah th thanks thanks for that hopefully that answers your question just just to add though so I want to correct what I said. Uh, I said Donnie is Donner. So as James, you said the right thing. So is the person that's gifting that typically would bear the tax burden in the US if there is any. Now, if it is that you guys are in Australia on a permanent basis, and in fact, you can be seen to be domiciled in Australia, at least for, from a tax perspective, then you are not no longer US tax domiciled. And therefore that, as I mentioned before, that uh, exclusion doesn't apply and the exclusion is actually uh, much lower at $60,000. So if that home is worth more than that $60,000, then uh, a gift tax may apply. And now in terms of the, the kids, when they receive the home, it's interesting to know that the basis in, in the home and the value of the home. So just in case they go on to, to sell it at some future point in time, the basis is yours, is whatever your basis was and, and is. So there's no step up in basis uh, upon the transfer. So I don't know if that can help in your tax planning, but I think the important thing is to figure out whether you are, and that this is a test of facts and circumstances, whether you are or not US tax domicile, because that would have a, a huge impact on how such a transaction would be treated. So you'd wanna to talk to, a tax professional and get a determination on that. Hope that helps. So I want to jump to the question that was just posted by Mr. C, Mr. or Ms. C in, in Zoom. So Australian resident for tax, naturalized US citizen, trying to minimize CGT capital gains tax payable in the US. If I open a retirement account in the US and pay money into it for future use, is it a tax deduction against my CGT as there is here in Australia when I make a concessional contribution to the super? Okay, so from a US, oh, so I see a second message. I don't have a US retirement account currently. So the, there are different types of U.S. retirement accounts. I, I know in the U, in in Australia, the big thing is the super, right? So that's the main game. But in, in the U.S., there are 
personal retirement accounts, they are the company-sponsored ones. And the, even you, in terms of your personal retirement account, it could be pre-tax, so it, you reduce your taxable income, or it can be post-tax, so it can be after-tax money that you're going to put in. If it's pre-tax, then you pay tax when you pull it out. If it's after tax, when you pull it out, it'll be tax-free upon retirement, right? So what it does, so the tax concession really is on your earned income. So if it is that you have a salary and you're going to put it into one of those funds that it, for which the benefit is it reduces your, your taxable income, it'll reduce your earned income, not necessarily any capital gains. So uh, if it is that you're in the process of selling whatever, it, I, I don't think it can be used to reduce imminent capital gains. However, there are ways in which you can put an appreciating asset in a retirement portfolio. And most famously, I think within recent time, I think it's Peter Thiel who put his early Facebook shares into a retirement fund. And they weren't worth that much when he put them in, but apparently they're worth a couple billion dollars right now. So to the extent- They were worth more two weeks ago. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, the biggest <laughs> drop in market cap in US corporate history. So the, the point is that if it is that you want to open a US retirement account to, uh, to hold custody, at least, of, of an appreciating asset, that may be possible. And you can speak to a U.S. financial planning professional to make that happen. So I, I'm not sure what your intention was, but if it is to invest an appreciating asset, yes. If it is to offset capital gains taxes that are imminent, probably not. Hope that helps. See? Okay. Switching back to the other list of questions. Right. Okay. If someone has uh, the, okay. The, and I see where this person, so this person is in Australia and they want to, uh, they want to set up, or they probably have already set up an LLC, a limited liability company in the United States. And there's this perception that once you form a company offshore, somehow you're magically going to save money. I guess all the movies and, and what Hollywood tells us. But that yeah. clearly is not going to save you any money, James. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and this this happens all the time, and, and people yeah. in Australia read, uh, you know, in the in the financial papers that you know mm -hmm. Apple don't pay any tax here, and uh, yeah. the, the difference is uh, Australia is in, in a corporate chart. Australia is at the bottom, um, mm. and in that scenario, um, all of the value that has been created is largely in intellectual property created mm -hmm. multiple tiers um, mm -hmm. upstream mm -hmm. and the entity that owns sorry you, james you're on mute james 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 you need to unmute yourself i think that ip Sorry, um, yeah. you, you're on mute for like 10 seconds. Could you rewind oh, sorry. 10 yeah, seconds? No, I, yeah. I got a phone call coming through. Sorry. So, okay. yeah, Australia yeah. is at the bottom. Um, if valuable IP is created upstream, offshore, it can charge significant fees to the Australian entity, which pulls what would otherwise be Australian tax profit out of the country. So, increases deductions in Australia, pushes up income in you know, low or sometimes no tax jurisdictions. That That is just the structure of the, the international tax system because it was created after actually between World War One and World War Two in a completely different world, uh, and the, all of the the you know, problems that we have in terms of you know, base erosion and profit shifting it's because it's very square peg round hole stuff. Um, the system is is a, a very physical or it's designed for a physical world, and we do we live in a digital world. Uh, if you flip it and the the directing mind, uh, what we call the central management and control of a company is in Australia um, and you incorporate an entity anywhere in the world, um, the definition of an Australian uh, resident company is uh, an entity that or a company that is incorporated in Australia, so 
it's not that if it's incorporated in the US or Lithuania or anywhere, or if it's not incorporated in Australia, it carries on business in Australia and it has either it has its central management and control in Australia, which is high level strategic decision making, not the day to day ops or operations, uh, or it has its voting controlled by Australian resident shareholders, which is you know, invariably the case. So it's very easy for an entity that just uh, incorporates or a company, an Australian individual that just incorporates a company overseas to to render that Australia, that foreign company an Australian resident for tax purposes. And that that is because a couple of years back in 2016, there was there was a high court case. Uh, and the issue was, well, if, if this is a two pronged test, it carries on business in Australia and either central management and control or voting, um, then you know what constitutes carrying on a business? And that, that case um, essentially said, look, if you're making high level strategic decisions, then at least in part, you're, making, you're, you're carrying on a business here in Australia. Um, so the same set of facts making um, decisions here, high level strategic decisions here in Australia can satisfy both of the two prongs, the carrying on a business and the central management and control. So that, that was the question. Well, is it a two prong test or is it a one prong test? But it's just that one set of facts can satisfy both. Now, that was not necessarily intended. The, the High Court gave basically carte blanche for the ATO to, to really take everyone to town. To their credit, so far, they haven't done that. And the, the Treasury and the government have actually flagged that there will be changes to residency because previously they said, in, in carrying on a business, um, you actually looked at the operations on the ground. If you had a factory in Venezuela, uh, even if central management and, and control was here, um, you weren't carrying on a business here in Australia. So you could, uh, that, that could legitimately be a foreign, foreign resident company. Um, the, the problem with having a, a foreign incorporated company be an Australian tax resident is that it will pay tax over there in its source country, if there is corporate tax, which generally there is. It'll also pay tax here in Australia. Um, Australia's corporate tax rate is high. So ordinarily, even though it provides, Australia provides a credit, there will be a top-up tax, um, but you'll only generate tax credits, so franking credits or imputation credits, to the extent of the tax actually paid here in Australia. So if you pay 20% overseas and you're a 30% um, company uh, here in Australia, you'd pay an additional 10% uh, 10 top-up tax here, but you'd only generate the $10 worth of, of ranking credits, even though you paid $30 in tax. So that will push up your effective tax rate because when a dividend is paid up to a, an Australian resident shareholder, it's only partially franked um, and they will pay tax at up to 45% minus the, the maximum um, 10%. So that, they've got you know, some significant top-up tax to pay. Um, so yes, you, you can certainly just do that, um, but it, it, that's the first hoop to jump through. The second hoop to jump through, even if the foreign entity remains a foreign tax re uh, resident, is Australia's uh, controlled foreign company rules. And Australia has uh, essentially a, a, a Western, high taxing Western alliance, really, where um, if you're a listed country, so we're talking uh, the US, the UK, New Zealand, France, Germany, uh, Japan, I think is on the list. Um, but uh, essentially those listed countries uh, effectively say, if you're carrying on a business over there and it's an active business, it's not a tainted business or a passive business, you won't be, Australia won't tax you, uh, as in the, the shareholder, if, uh, with, with lim very limited exceptions, what they call eligible designated concession income, um, which uh, I've never actually dealt with that issue for the US, but the, the main one, for instance, uh, say I incorporated a company in New Zealand, carries on business in New Zealand, but it makes a capital gain. Um, uh, New Zealand don't tax capital gains, but that is considered to be kind of CFC income, so it's actually taxed and it's attributed to me, as in the, the shareholder, it's an attribution regime, it'll tax me directly. Um, so really there's there's two hoops to jump through if you're you're wanting to successfully offshore. One, the, the residency issue, because a foreign incorporated company can very easily 
be considered an Australian tax resident, although watch this space because the legislation is changing. Uh, we're about to go through a, uh, uh, an election, so I don't know what the, the appetite is if that, if that isn't squared away before, before the election, but certainly it, it's on the, on the radar. The second hoop is, even if you jump through the first hoop successfully, is it a controlled foreign company? Or almost certainly, if it's a wholly owned subsidiary uh, or it's wholly owned by me as an Australian resident, absolutely, it's a CFC. The issue then becomes, does it have any attrib attributable income? That depends on where the income is generated and the, the type of, of business or type of transactions that it enters into. Um, and if there is um, attributable income, then say there's a hundred thousand dollars worth of attributable income of my foreign foreign company i personally as the shareholder and am, am taxed on that income well well answered you know i think you, you covered everything there and it's I, I don't know where it comes from but probably just like you i face this type of question multiple times every week i guess yeah. somebody read something or they saw something on a movie. yeah and they yeah. are convinced and they argue with me. I'm yeah. gonna form this company and I'm going it's not gonna be taxed. The money doesn't come back in. It's just but you're right. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's, control, yeah, that's a great yeah, that's a great point. Uh, because that that yeah. in that structure, yeah, to the extent that it works, it it relies on not being found out. And that's that's not that's not a tax strategy. That's uh, you know that's, uh, we, that's we just that's just criminal activity. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you'll be you'll be you'll be looking at four walls, a quadrangle. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, if, if you're if the, the linchpin of your strategy is uh, mm -hmm. not being detected, then you may yeah. want to rethink that strategy. Exactly. Okay, so on to something less glamorous. We're going to talk about retirement planning now. So Liz is asking, how are the 43D, which is a, a public sector retirement fund, uh, IRAs, individual retirement accounts in the US, and Roth IRAs, which would be after-tax money, like we discussed mm -hmm. earlier, how withdrawals from that in the US tax in Australia as she's Australian tax resident? Sure. So if it's a public sector fund, it would depend on the... the I'll start at the beginning. There's two things. If you can't, when you move to Australia, actually transfer your your balance to an Australian fund, we're not talking about that. We're talking about what happens when you actually uh, you met whatever conditions of release over in the the US, and you're actually pulling out um, pulling out funds. Um, in those circumstances, the double tax agreements, regardless of the the domestic uh, rules in in either country. Um, the double tax agreements uh, ordinarily give, and and from where the US Australia DTA gives taxing rights to the Australian, um, to so the residence country of the individual, not the source country of the of the pension. So if that's the the case, that payment, if it's if it's accessible in Australia, even though it's not accessible in the US, then you you've kind of blown up that um, the the tax benefit from a US perspective by being an Australian resident. And the reverse is is also true. You could be in receipt of a tax-free pension in Australia, but live in a country that taxes that. The DTA assigns sole taxing rights to the other country and you get taxed. Right. And I just saw, I, I want to continue from where you've left off. Because we, one would find because, you know, Australia is an international uh, uh, jurisdiction for people who work with multinationals. So it's not uncommon for Americans to do a stint in Australia and then return to the US. So they work with an Australian subsidiary of, you know, one of the big tech companies or one of the big financial institutions and they return to the US. And when they return to the US, invariably because they spend time in Australia, they have a super. Now they can't, it's not really portable. It's not easily portable. So they need to leave it in Australia until they retire. And now upon retirement, it's like, okay, I want to access that money. How am I going to do so? So as you pointed out, it may be tax-free to Australia, but it's taxable in the US. Now I'll just comment, Liz, I know you didn't ask about this, but I'm just commenting generally. 
So we see like three approaches from a US tax perspective. They are the adventurous tax professionals. They say, well, you know, the Australian super is actually like a social security program, not in the actual legislation, but in legislative intent. Because in parliament, when it was being uh, created and when it's being modified, it, I believe it was mentioned that the intent is for it to replace the, its predecessor, which is an, in fact, a, a proper social security program as we know it. So these glamorous US tax professionals say it's social security, so it's not taxable in the US. I, we think that that is an extreme position. You take that position uh, on your own risk and the IRS may come after you and with interest and penalties and whatever. So that is, that is a, a more dangerous position to take. On the other hand, uh, you, you can just look at it as a straightforward distribution and some sort of uh, forensic analysis would be needed to determine, okay, what is the basis in the superannuation? How much was originally in, uh, what was the original contribution, right? Yeah. And then what is the delta between the contribution and its present value and that delta it will be subject to, to tax upon distribution. So as in well, you pull it out, it'll be taxed at ordinary tax rates. So that, that's the other extreme. It's very conservative. And, and to be honest, that's the one we would feel comfortable with. There's a middle ground. Some people look at, especially with self-managed funds, self SMSFs, we, some people say, well, you know, more than 50% of the value in the super is my contribution as opposed to an employer. So it's, it's me. So therefore, I want to treat it as a, a grant to a trust. And it can be treated as a grant to a trust under US tax rules. In that case, you don't wait until there's a distribution. As there is growth in the fund on an annual basis, it can be declared and subject to taxes in the US. But that has some complications as well, because there is debate. There was a, an article that was published in one of the peer-reviewed legal journals in the US that was exploring that, that, that option of looking at it as a, a foreign grant to a trust. And they're, they're saying, okay, well, your contributions, okay, that's fine. We can look at it as a grant to a trust. It, you, the fund will declare uh, a 3520A and you refer that to the IRS and you pay taxes on it on your personal tax return. But what about if you were employed at some point in time, what about your employer contributions? Would that be part of a grant to a trust or would that actually be a non-grant to a trust? And so that, that becomes a bit complex. And then what about if the fund was used to invest in, you know, in pooled investment schemes, some funds in, in Australia, right? So, or some equity funds. So it's a, it's a possible that it would trigger something called PFIX or passive foreign investment company tax treatment, which again is not to the taxpayer's advantage. So we think that on the, so this is on the other side in terms of someone being US tax resident with uh, an Australian super and uh, receiving a distribution, they probably need to sit with a tax professional to really go through the pros and cons of each of the possible approaches to see what would work uh, most efficiently given your unique circumstances. Uh, hope that helps. So Liz has come back now. She's asking below me. So I'm just reading it for those who are not on Zoom. So in response to my question, so she's in Australia with US pensions. Any monies that are withdrawn from the 403B or from the IRA funds are taxed in Australia if you're resident for tax purposes in Australia. James? No, I'd be surprised if, if they weren't. Right. And she's asking roughly what rate of tax would be applied? Uh, it just, it depends on you. Yeah. All, all your in, we don't have separate separate tax rates um, for different types of income generally. It's just all pooled. Mm -hmm. So if you have any other type of income, it just all goes mm -hmm. into the one pool and it's assessed at your marginal tax rate based on what racket you fall in in that year up to a maximum mm -hmm. currently. 40, 45 plus the, the Medicare levy, 2%. Right. And the, uh, the opposite obtains in the US as well. You just be taxed on your, on your marginal tax rate as well. Because all ordinary income is just kind of pooled yeah, in together. Yeah, lumped in together. Yeah. Okay. So it is the top of the hour. Unfortunately, we've come to the end. I know there were a few questions we didn't get to. I apologize. Maybe next time. 
But if you want to reach out to James directly, his email address is one more time. James.melly, M-E-L-I, at abbottmorley.com.au. Fantastic. And I'm and no, I was just wondering with the next one, when we do our next yeah. one, think of a topic that the that the viewers, you know, the listeners want to hear, I yeah. guess. And we can and so we can bring James back on to for another session, you know. Absolutely. So as, that, I, that's a, as it was a lively it was a lively discussion. I mean, yeah, really, and the fact really that we get to go through all the questions posed. So uh, you know, if you want James back, comment below or send us an email <laughs> asking, please bring James back. Bring him back. back. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Darren Joseph. We're at hcj.tax. Again, this, this will be available wherever you get your favorite podcast. You will be able to get it. Uh, see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. See you guys. Bye-bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Texas and International Entrepreneur Texas at www.htj.tex. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tex. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult over Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at htj.tax to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.